Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. You're joining us for episode 78, and today we're really going to shake things up a little bit. Uh, we decided to squeeze this episode into our schedule because we feel this topic is so important and it keeps getting brought up over and over. So today we're talking all things coconut oil and making a case against the recent negative spotlight that's been shown on it from organizations like the American Heart Association. And I really thought we were done talking about this one as their most recent study came out last summer and there was a whole lot of hubbub around that time, but the headlines are continuing to roll in. Our clients are freaking out and we just couldn't ignore it anymore. Yes. <laughs> oh, goodness. I know. It really hit me. The timing was all too perfect because I think it was just two weeks ago when Apple News had this on their homepage and um, it was the headline pulled from coconut pulled from, excuse me, Cooking Light Magazine, <laughs> Coconut Light, I wish. Um, so Cooking Light Magazine put out a headline, coconut oil sales plummet as everyone realizes what we've been saying all along. <laughs> and Apple News put that feature on their homepage and I got a text from my dad of all people. <laughs> Sometimes it's like, you know, they, they hear it for years. I understand maybe the credibility of who I am as it's seen through the scope of my father's eyes, but he was like, Allie, should I stop adding my coconut oil to my keto coffee like you've been having me do? And I like look at the thing and I'm like, are you kidding me? And it was the same week that Jillian Michaels came out with first her comments of ignorance on the whole 30, followed by her widely inappropriate comments on the ketogenic diet comparing people that do keto as psychopaths. So I was a little bit emotional, <laughs> to say at least, and I called Becky up right away and I was like, we are, whatever is scheduled for next week's recording, we are recording in defense of coconut oil. And you guys, today, beyond taking this specific to coconut oil, which we will, because it's one of our favorite things, it's like my big fat Greek wedding Windex, essentially. Everything gets coconut oil treated in my household. <laughs> it's like, yes. <laughs> if you have a, an open wound, put some coconut oil on it. Um, if your daughter is screaming, give her a spoon of coconut oil. <laughs> um, it is for every use and purpose and so many fun different functions. But today we're also going to be speaking pretty broadly in the defense of saturated fats. So I hope that today's episode leaves you enlightened and empowered with up-to-date medical information versus convoluted studies that get often misinterpreted or misrepresented based on financial organizations. Yes. And I know I had lots of clients emailing me and were completely freaked out by this quote unquote news, but really what they're saying is nothing new. This is repurposing of a headline the American Heart Association, they didn't do a new study. They were right. also repurposing old information. We'll get into that, but from 
you know, the 1960s. And it's like, come on, guys. <laughs> yep. Yet it's being announced as cutting yep. edge, you know, yep. breaking edge news. Yeah. And, and if you don't read into the actual studies, you know, it, it's a scare tactic and it, it works for a lot of people. So today we'll be trying to put this issue to rest once and for all. We're going to be talking about where the AHA is coming from, how the data has been skewed to reflect coconut oil in particular, so negatively. We'll talk about the influence of coconut oil on lipid panel and cardiovascular risk, as well as many other conditions, its benefits, applications, traditional culinary uses, and our favorite products and recipes. So a lot to come, and it's safe to say even if you don't listen to this whole episode, we are still team coconut oil. And by the end of this episode, you will be having three different bottles or jars of coconut oil in your household. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, I think I have more than that. Like, <laughs> yeah, we do too. Well, then there's one in Stella's room. Yeah, that is the best thing, you guys. Nursing mama's best thing for mastitis prevention putting coconut oil on your nipples and also salves for diaper rash, best first line of defense, but we'll get there. We'll get there yes. later. <laughs> yes. Okay. So let's start off with these recent headlines because a lot of people don't realize that it's not like a new study actually came out. Right. Right. So it's, it's nothing new. The American Heart Association issued a presidential advisory last summer. And it stated that saturated fats, including coconut oil, should be avoided and replaced instead with polyunsaturated fats like canola, soy, and corn oil. So this recommendation to reduce dietary saturated fat has been consistent since the 60s. And every couple of years, it pops up as quote unquote news. You know, they did liberalize the influence of um, dietary cholesterol in the past decade, but saturated fat continues to be demonized. And I think before we go on, I just want to talk a little bit about organic chemistry and, and give you guys a little bit of an understanding of what is the difference of an unsaturated versus saturated fat. So a saturated fat has closed bonds, no unsaturated bonds. It is a closed fat chain. And what that means when a, when a, a fat has open bonds, it can have one open bond, meaning monounsaturated, or many open bonds, meaning polyunsaturated, okay? And when a bond is open, it can be transverse from a cis to a trans. So this is where we can start to see the creation of trans fats. Um, when we try to take a liquid vegetable oil and hydrogenate it or partially hydrogenate it, we're often shifting that structure to make that into a trans fat, which luckily everyone, I think, is across the board in agreement that trans fats are the most harmful fats because of that unnatural configuration that hinders the metabolism and drives more waxy particle buildup um, and, and can drive cardiovascular risk and cancer risk. So trans fats are no bueno. Um, now, why would we recommend polyunsaturated versus saturated? A lot of this stems from the misinformation that we'll share today. But when we're looking at the structure and the relationship, every open or exposed bond has an opportunity be to become oxidized 
and damaged and thus making a rancid fat. And these rancid fats in themselves can function similar to trans fats. And the more open or exposed bonds seen in polyunsaturated versus monounsaturated, the more opportunities for oxidative damage and poor quality fats or damaging fats in our body. So when we're talking about things that create oxidative damage, we're looking at light and heat. So most tightly in our recommendations, we always note that saturated fats are the safest fats to use when cooking or under high heat because they don't have those opportunities of the polyunsaturated to become oxidized or damaged. So structurally, I just want to kind of call that out a little bit before we go down the rabbit hole about mechanisms. Um, is that clear how I did I think, that there, Becky? I think that's super helpful. I like when you do it visually too and picturing you do this like air traffic controller. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I got the hand here. gestures going over here. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, right, you know, a polyunsaturated fat is generally speaking with, with my perspective naturally nourished, the least healthy fat because of the many opportunities for oxidative damage, okay? And so generally speaking, we're the biggest fans of saturated fats, followed by monounsaturated, then followed by only a selective few poly. And we're not going to get deeper into that conversation today. We'll have to do a whole episode, I think, on our favorite fats and cooking and different mm -hmm. episodes. Because now we're going to delve into why saturated fat is okay and how coconut oil um, is one of the best choices out there. Yes. So let's talk about the actual, what the American yeah, Heart Presidential Advisory. <laughs> let's talk about what's being recommended right now, because at least we're on the same page. Yes, trans fats are bad. Trans fats <laughs> were something that were created to replace saturated fats. Now we're backpedaling, removing them from the diet and trying to replace the saturated fats with something else. Like, and, and you know, on, it's guys. like, again, starting to understand why they did that. The same oils that they're recommending now, corn, soy, and canola, are the types of fats they were trying to trans. So they've been constantly trying to get these particular crops or oils, per se, into the diet as the best option. So it's better than butter, right? Um, yes. So currently, their recommendations are not to consume zero grams of saturated fat. They recommend 30 grams for men and 20 grams a day for women. So this is generally speaking, each tablespoon of coconut oil is 15 grams of saturated fat, give or take. Well, fat for sure. And so, you know, when we're looking at our um, intake, that could be about two tablespoons of coconut oil. Um, an egg has just over a gram of saturated fat. A four ounce steak has about 10 grams of saturated fat, of course, pending on the cuts. So it's not zero, it's, but it is to be conservative and it does have an influence on a negative association as far as how they're, they're um, presenting the role of saturated fats. Um, the tiny shed of credit in the study is that, like I said, they did demonize trans fats again and they did recommend consumption of a Mediterranean style diet rich in fatty acids from wild fish. I'm not sure if they emphasized wild, but definitely from marine life and fish, olives, nuts and seeds. So, um, you know, they said saturated fat should be limited. We should drive with these quote unquote healthy fats. Um, but yet it was reported that the American Heart Association advised against the use of coconut oil. However, they still said in this same publication that clinical trials that compared direct effects on cardiovascular disease of coconut oil and other dietary oils have not been reported. 
So in other words, there basically is zero data linking cardiovascular disease with coconut oil specifically. We could end the episode. Like, <laughs> done. <laughs> yeah, mic drop, right? Um, so it, it really does. It seems like it's every other year coconut oil is bad, then it's good, then it's maybe okay, then it's bad again. And it really just seems like it's being used as this scapegoat or this maybe distractor of our attention. Um, let's talk about the actual report and the most recent claims, what they're based on. Right. So like you said, it's a report, not a study. <laughs> and I think it's important to emphasize that. So in the report, it was the, the full name is Dietary Fats and Cholesterol Disease, a Presidential Advisory. Um, and when you just start to peel back the layers of the report and look at funding and influence, we can find pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer and Klein and AstraZeneca, um, we see also research grants and funding for authors from companies that manufacture cholesterol-lowering drugs, for sure. So the whole stat industry is in there. And then we see funding and influence from, specifically, the Canola Oil Council um, and California Walnut Commission. Um, and it's all very heavily integrated in what is cherry-picked within the literature because this was not a study, this was a report. Sure, and, and but wait, there's more. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about who else the American Heart Association is just generally in bed with beyond just this one report. Yeah, so beyond financial influence from pharmaceutical companies, which in theory you would think is a bad idea because pharmaceutical companies want to sell drugs, mm -hmm. not necessarily make you better. <laughs> so there's that thing. Um, so there's huge influence there. And then beyond the oil and fat manufacturers that were specifically in this panel, we know that there's a lot of big wig influence in the food industry uh, as far as Nestle, Coca-Cola, the Sugar Association, the United Soybean um, Board, and then I mentioned the U.S. Canola Association, in addition to the Canola Oil Council, <laughs> they all serve on the Industry Nutrition Advisory Panel for the AHA, and, and they help to make decisions, marketing, um, presentation, and messaging to the general public. Right, and then the AHA doesn't want to piss off their funders, so it's kind of <laughs> catch-22 here. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, other companies include things, uh, ones like Subway, General Mills, the cereal manufacturer, Bayer Aspirin are also funders of the American Heart Association. Which and is then, why there's still that damn outdated study I, on how you should take a baby aspirin. We just did a post in our, you can look back in our Instagram or our Facebook, linking research studies of using a good quality EPA DHA omega-3 fatty acid, which has just as much stroke prevention and anti-inflammatory influence and does not tax the body or have any influence in cancer risk or liver um, on a negative level. In fact, helps with fatty liver. So there's that. <laughs> yeah. I can't tell you how often I come across, especially older clients um, who are have been on a daily baby aspirin for so many years as a preventative, and they're also dealing with pretty severe GI issues. I mean, one of yeah. the side effects is GI bleeds, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely from NSAIDs. And yeah, aspirin uh -huh. can be taxing on the body for sure over that period of time. Yeah. 
So anyway, beyond that, um, what really gets me is seeing like the, the AHA little seal of approval, the, the heart check program that yes. they have, seeing this on the grocery store shelves as well. Yep. And it is definitely, I mean, their criteria for what fits the bill is really, in my opinion, loose to interpretation. And um, that's where we're getting a lot of industrialized processed ingredients, like in order to get the fiber up, uh, manufacturers are adding a lot of processed different um, synthetic celluloses um, and um, fibers from like almost plastic byproducts and such that can be very distressing for the body um, and are not whole foods. So yes, they have this heart check program and you know they'll put these seal of approval on things like Honey Nut Cheerios or V8 Fusion. And a lot of these products endorsed are extremely high in refined carbohydrates and sugar. A lot of them have genetically modified ingredients and a lot of them have very low true heart supportive nutrients in them at all. Um, and so we can see that interests lie within those that are endorsing and they're going to have a difficult time, like you said, Becky, making recommendations against their primary funders. And so that makes me question the validity of truly any claims made by this association that has such heavy lobbying and financial interest. Yep. So I think that's issue number one we can put to rest is who's funding these studies in the first place where do the interests lie and, and how does that skew the information that's actually coming out? Right. Because remember when you, and again, you know, we'll use the word study and report interchangeably. And yes, this was a report, but even the studies within it, as we'll get into the cherry picking, um, you know, even the studies within the report, mind you, when an organization funds a scientist to do a study, they have a hypothesis and they want their hypothesis proven. The studies that don't prove the hypothesis do not get published, right? <laughs> so it's like you can have 30 plus trials to show a hypothesis and you can adjust your population size. You can make so many modifications of the structure of the design to prove your hypothesis. And then that's the one that the scientist gets the big funding bonus for. And that's the one that gets published. And that's the one that gets disseminated within the medical community. So that in the first place is something important to note that, that there can be manipula manipulation on the level of getting the information published and out there. And there's definitely strategic filtration in that system. Yes, absolutely. And, and let's get into the specific cherry picking, as you mentioned, of this particular report. Yeah. So, I mean, like you said, Becky, some of the references in this report started back from the 60s. And we've seen in recent years at least 17 systematic reviews and meta-analyses. Uh, and meta-analyses? Yes. <laughs> meta-analyses. <laughs> that word. <laughs> Yes. Um, conducted in um, recent years. And they have not found a clear link between saturated fat and heart disease. And this is our like constant, you know, ringing the bell. Hello, is anyone listening? There is no correlation in up-to-date recent, recent research studies. Um, and the authors themselves of this report noted that, this is a quote, in the past few years, meta-analysis of observational studies and randomized clinical trials have come to dis discordant, 
conclusions about the relationship between dietary saturated fat and risk of cardiovascular disease. So they clearly state that there have not been conclusions, um, and they also state that um, there may not be a relationship at all between saturated fat and cardiovascular disease. And that's in the study where they're recommending a reduction of saturated fat, or excuse me, in the report in which they're recommending the reduction of saturated fat. So what's interesting is then they proceed to pick four core studies um, from this bank and they want to demonstrate their link to demonize saturated fat. Now, this is concerning because the four studies selected in this publication were from 1969, 1970, 1968, and 1979. So um, <laughs> definitely not new news. And I find it to be extremely manipulative in the fact that this is an up-to-date report using antiquated research as their foundational status of their argument. You know, this is the same stuff that we saw with the seven countries study with Ansel Keys. And, you know, Gary Tubbs talks about this. A lot of our up-to-date researchers that are looking at the benefits of a high-fat diet, um, those of us that are advocating for the ketogenic diet. And, um, you know, when Ansel Keys, he was the, the father of the correlation of saturated fat and heart disease hypothesis. And he picked seven out of 22 studies to prove an initial relationship, and we've locked and loaded and started funding canola, soy, and corn in our industrialized farming and the way that we're subsidizing crops in our country, and we've locked and loaded since then, and we're not looking back, and, and this just continues to prove that same argument. This is outdated, and it's tired, and I'm, I'm calling bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. So yes, these new recommendations are based on between 40 and 60 year old science. Yep. And that in itself is hugely problematic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what about just the issue with uh, nutritional studies in general? I know we talked a lot about this in our rebuttal. What the hell? What the hell? Um, yeah. What episode number, do you remember what episode that number that is? Was that 40? Three or forty? I think forty-three is is vegan. I'll okay. find out for you guys. Okay, okay, yeah, we should share that because I yeah. I have still that come up all the time too. <laughs> yes, and there's a lot of good information about saturated fat in there as well. Yes. And so, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about research nutritional studies in general. So they can be very problematic because it's very difficult to do a closed feeding study model uh, because there is that, you know, human <laughs> influence of free will. And so many nutritional studies are observational. Okay. So when we're talking about research methods, we know personally and from our clinical work, <laughs> that a lot of people, when you're doing a dietary recall, that's often one of the, the methods of collecting information. It's a diet recall um, or a food record or an interview or a food frequency questionnaire. A lot of people lie, unfortunately, or they have a halo effect or they just have widely inaccurate information. Um, and so there's not been a large scale study that's been truly observational in a closed environment where we can truly watch direct intake and, and monitor that for outtake. And so that's one big influence. Then there's correlation versus causation. And a lot of nutrition research is based on epidemiological data that can only show 
correlations or connections. Um, you know, so they see people that live in the Mediterranean have a lower risk of heart disease. Um, they look at areas in China and that's where they have arguments for benefits of soy. Um, and, you know, so they look at different countries and then they make a correlation and a relationship connection to disease prevention. Um, you know, as an example, <laughs> ice cream sales could correlate with the number of drownings. Um, but <laughs> that doesn't mean that ice cream causes you to drown. That means that ice cream is sold by a pool where there's conditions that you may drown. Right. So, or in the summertime when you're eating more ice cream. Yeah. You know, so there could be correlations that are totally um, not just don't make sense. And so it's important to be mindful of that and, um, you know, kind of raise your eyebrow when you're looking at a correlation study. And then when we're looking at the interpretation, um, specifically, we'll talk about that deeper today. You can even look beyond a statistical and then what is the clinical significance. So there could be a statistical significance in a change in data, but what is the clinical re re relevance of that? So if you look, for instance, there was clinical significance of a change in LDL. So LDL total may go up by a couple points. Um, and that may have a statistically significant change, but the change in heart disease may not correlate with that statistical significance. Um, and so when we're talking about that in this case, the authors are looking at assessing the number, not the number of cardiovascular incidents, they were really looking at a change in LDL and then taking another correlation that LDL cholesterol is a risk factor for heart disease. And then they were stating that this causes heart disease. <laughs> um, and so there were a couple leaps within that. And, you know, when we're looking at that, there's also within that interpretation of research, it's a myopic scope or a very dumbed down broad or, 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 or narrow, I guess if you'd say myopic, we're really channeling in on just LDL and not the influence that there is something called LDL particle size, there's distribution, there's other things. And you can't just first off say that LDL is heart disease in the first place. Yes. And by the way, it's episode 51 that we were referring to. We were close. Um, that you. is our, our what the hell rebuttal to what the hell. Yes. Really good one. Yeah. So some of the studies that were uh, considered in this report, the changes in cholesterol ranged between 0.6 to 2.1 milligrams yeah. per deciliter after alterating or after alterating their saturated fat intake. So that teeny tiny change in cholesterol, I mean, let's talk about how much a cholesterol test can change literally from one day to the next. Yeah. So this is really important to understand. So right. That was 0.6 to 2.1. So like she said, statistically that makes sense, but we're literally, let's talk about a human. If my cholesterol, my LDL goes from 120 to 118 or from 120 <laughs> to 122, Point one. That's what we're literally talking about as far as the difference. Um, and so it's important to first acknowledge that cholesterol analysis is varied even within several days without an intervention or a modifiable change. So there were studies that were done on LDL cholesterol, and they saw a fluctuation of more than 20%, so 17-point change on average <laughs> in 95% of the subjects that were tested and retested. Um, and um, there's a correlation of even 
more than a 40% change in 45% of the subjects. <laughs> so, you know, 95% of almost everyone had about a 20% variation just making a repeat of their cholesterol test several days later with no intervention change, not even related to this study, but yet we're singing from the hills about saturated fat raising by 0.6 to 2.1 when there could be a 17 point change with no change. Yeah. So I think that really puts it into perspective and, and to take it further, I mean, one day you could literally be told you were in absolutely perfect health and the next day being prescribed a statin. Right. Right. Totally. It's, it's wild. That, that's absolutely wild. And that's why my philosophy of cardiovascular disease and markers of risk are not looking at just the total LDL, HDL, and triglycerides. There are a lot more up-to-date scientific studies that we can look at that give us a lot more detailed approach and more accurate. Yes. So those are just a couple of the issues between the funding and vested interests and the research methods. Let's talk about the actual data presented and get into this whether or not LDL influences cardiovascular risk at all. Yeah, so, so let's start there. I mean, like I said, the focus of the report was on the effects of coconut oil on LDL cholesterol. And that is known as, quote unquote, the bad cholesterol. There is stronger studies on triglycerides being more harmful to true cardiovascular risk than LDL. But LDL has been deemed, along with triglycerides many of the time, the bad cholesterol. The premise that LDL cholesterol predicts heart disease is very faulty logic. And this has been shown over repeated research studies where we've seen that 50% of people have died from sudden heart attack that had a normal or quote unquote healthy LDL level. And then on top of that, lowering the LDL only reduces the risk of heart disease by about 25%. So that in itself doesn't even add up. Um, and when we're looking at LDL, it in itself is not bad. There is mechanisms within the LDL breakdown and the LDL metabolism that can be cardio um, harmful or higher cardiovascular risk. Yes. Yeah, so let's talk about particle size because the report from the American Heart Association did not even touch this subject at all. And that is greatly because of the financial funding of the statin drugs. Uh -huh. In fact, there are published research studies that demonstrate that statin drugs lower your total cholesterol, lower your LDL, but unfavorably influence your LDL particle size. This is why we are not looking at LDL particle in every single physician's office today. A lot of doctors, thank God, are, are, are finally looking through a less narrow glance at the literature and are understanding the mechanisms of particles. So let's talk about that. So of your LDL, when you get just a standard lipid panel, like the American Heart Association used in their correlation studies, and we're looking at total LDL, that is an algorithm. So it is not a particle count. It's like a weight on a scale. Okay. And so if you take a, let's think in like science class, we take like a beaker, one of those little clear containers. And if we're putting marbles, we could put probably a hundred small LDL marticle, mar, LDL marticles, <laughs> LDL <laughs> marbles, tiny LDL marbles, a hundred into that glass container. And that's going to weigh, let's say a pound. 
Okay. So your score of your total LDL is a pound. I'm not using numbers. I'm just being simple. Let's say that makes your LDL a hundred. So let's say in that same beaker, you fit 30 large LDL marbles. And on the scale, that still weighs a pound. So your total LDL would still be a hundred. But we know that there were a hundred particles in the first beaker and there were 30 particles in the other beaker. Why does that matter? It matters because those bigger, fluffier LDLs are less likely to stick to the vessels of blood, uh, our blood vessels, the walls of our blood vessels, and they're less sticky. They're less pr prone towards oxidative damage or inflammatory processes. So they're not going to be creating that sticky plaque formation. The more tiny LDL marbles, or the, I gotta stop that, I keep calling them marticles. Marticles, uh, it's a new word, I love it. I know, those <laughs> tiny, those hundred marbles that we had in that beaker have um, a lot more surface area, right? All those tiny boop, 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 boop. A lot more particle opportunity for oxidative damage. And since they're tinier, they don't bounce buoyantly through the vessels. They're more prone towards um, actually kind of burrowing into the vessel lining. Um, they're much more prone towards oxidative damage and inflammatory processes and stickiness factor. So there's different mechanisms of action of the LDL based on the particle size. And that's why as a starting point, you can get your LDL particle count and you can start to look a little bit of peripheral information there of more of a disease risk over total LDL. And then you can actually look at an LDL particle distribution, which will show you type one through type four of LDL particles with the type three and the type four, the smaller denser being more harmful than the type one and type two. And we see time and time and time again, the more that we manipulate the diet by reducing refined carbohydrates and then further influencing glycemic index and actually even further lowering carbohydrates out from those refined into even maybe more of the paleo diet into a keto diet, the more we reduce those carbohydrates, the larger those LDL particles get. The more safe they become, the more saturated fat we add to the diet, the larger those become and the less risk factor. And we tend to see a really amazing influx of our HDL, which is the broom of the vessels, which is very cardioprotective. I keep waiting for the, the mic drop moment, but we just keep digging deeper. It keeps getting better and better. <laughs> <laughs> and literally, when I look at a lipoprotein particle distribution and that bell curve is tipped too far towards the type 3 and type 4, I start to dig deeper into talking to my client about going keto, even if they were already low glycemic. Okay, so you've seen an improvement. This is how we can get you further. Um, and there's a big influence in the connection of insulin lowering, which <laughs> the American Heart Association diet does not lower insulin. Uh -uh. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Those honey nut Cheerios are not going to lower your insulin, honey. Um, and so, you know, the more insulin regulation, we tend to see more favorable LDL particle distribution as well. Um, and that happens by reducing refined carbs and upping the saturated fat. Okay, so it sounds like the American Heart Association is focused on the entirely wrong target with just that demonization of LDL with saturated fat. Um, so let's talk about what we should focus on in terms of true risk for cardiovascular disease, in your opinion. Right, I mean, so the, st the, the, the article in Cooking Light comes out and says, you guys, 
It's true. Coconut oil raises LDL. Remember, LDL is a bad cholesterol. Remember, this causes heart disease. And that's, that's what's announced. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Um, and so the first thing you know, we want to look at again is that just because your LDL increased, how did your LDL particle size shift? So LDL particle size is one of the first things that we look at to get a qualitative look at our cholesterol and lipid trends. Um, beyond that, cholesterol, even for me as a functional medicine practitioner, is secondary as an approach of consideration when I'm talking about managing heart disease risk, because the root cause of heart disease is inflammation. And I'm going to be very brief here because I also have an episode specifically on cardiovascular disease and functional medicine, and um, we will link in our show notes our cardiometabolic panel. If you're interested in running a lab that will look at all of these things, it is $200. It looks at your lipoprotein particle. It looks at your C-reactive protein, which is a marker of inflammation. Um, it looks at your LP little a, which is a marker of your stickiness factor of your blood, which is a higher um, correlation and trend in uh, medical literature as far as stroke and um, blood clots. It also looks at homocysteine, which is a marker of methylation and a marker of vascular inflammation. And so in a functional level, we want to know the status and the function of the vessel. We want to know the state of inflammation. And we also want to monitor blood sugar. So looking at fasting insulin, which we include in that panel, and hemoglobin A1C, as well as keeping blood pressure regulated. Because inflammation, puffy inflamed vessels are the vessels that are set up for fire and damage. And what drives damage is things like toxins, excessive sugars, which nick the surface as those blood sugars at high levels fly through the vessels, and blood pressure, which makes tiny tears in the um, internal elements of the blood vessel. And so when we get damage, that's when cholesterol comes in as a Band-Aid to kind of cover and seal. And, you know, that's really looking at the cholesterol as like a firefighter at the scene of a fire. Yes, cholesterol is present, but we know so many other mechanisms of action. And we're starting to understand that disease risk for heart disease starts earlier in the lighter fluid, um, per se, versus the Band-Aid. Right. So we'll link to that episode so you guys can get all of the in-depth information about that panel and true cardiovascular risk and disease predictors. But this takes us to our next issue with the American Heart Association report. So let's talk about what's recommended as a replacement for our coconut oil oh, and saturated fats. I know. So uh, <laughs> this is what kills me too. And this is where it's, it's right away I can shut down, I can shut off my brain because of the funding. We talked about how there were two different associations funding canola oil involved within this report, right? Um, I mentioned that farm subsidies, our industrialized farm subsidies are um, in the way that our agricultural system works, are for corn, soy, and canola. And what irks me further is that many of these crops are genetically modified. We're talking more than 90% on average of these three different crops. And this can contribute to extreme levels of glycophosphate, which is that uh, endocrine disrupting herbicide used in Roundup. Um, it can cause neuropathy. It can accelerate 
all neurological diseases and conditions, which we continue to see rampantly on the rise with things like MS and Parkinson's and dementia. Um, it can drive infertility. It can drive, like I mentioned, type 2 diabetes and blood sugar irregularity and toxicity in the system, which can drive inflammation, the root cause of heart disease. Right. And this is in the food. It's not like you can wash it off or use a special veggie rinse or peel off the skin or something. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, beyond this, so, so yeah, that's the GMO argument. It's they're dirty. And then there's not even beyond the crops being grown GMO and being overly sprayed. And then the processing to take these uh, vegetable seeds um, into or, or legumes, you know, whatever the starting point is, into a clear oil. It uses a lot of chemical solvents. It uses a lot of different additives and the hexalents and extractors, which are also highly toxic. So, I mean, across the board, no bueno. And their stability to make them shelf stable, um, you know, A, it's a dead, very low nourishing product that is highly rancidized and oxidized as is, um, and um, definitely toxic. There was a study done in 2016 by um, British Medical Journal, and it looked at what happens when people take saturated fats out of their diet and replace with vegetable oil. So instead of consuming saturated fats, people were eating more corn oil and those tub-like products like margarine replacements and such. And it turns out <laughs> that when they replaced saturated fat with corn oil um, and other similar oils, that they had an increased risk of coronary heart disease and death from all causes, mortality in general. <laughs> and um, this could have a huge connection to the connection of maybe the omega-6 to omega-3 ratios. You know, corn is higher omega-6, um, and that arachidonic acid um, tends to be higher inflammatory. So we need that omega-3 to balance it out. And there's an unfavorable influence there. Right. And just kind of in general in the American diet, there's an unfavorable influence toward way, oh, way yeah. more omega-6. We're at a 20 plus to 30 or, or beyond 40, some I mean, say. 40 is like what I've been yeah. hearing lately. Yeah. Yeah. To one ratio to one. And that's really a lot of the premise of more of like the paleolithic diet of getting in your leafy greens, your pasture-raised meats, and then the marine life to try to reset that equilibrium. And removing grains and legumes is a great way to start to reset that, that relationship for certain. Sure. And then bringing in a quality fish oil, that's probably, you know, if someone asks me for my top three supplement recommendations for anyone, regardless of disease process, I would put EPA, DHA, extra on that top three list for sure. I am such a huge fan of that product as well. It's definitely in my top three or top four for foundational supplement support because it is, like you said, almost impossible to get back to that three to one or two to one ratio of more of the hunter gatherer. And so using that fish oil support does help to also reduce inflammation across the board. And then it can help you with all sorts of different inflammatory processes as well as supporting your risk for heart health. Yes. So, okay. I think you guys get it. We're super annoyed <laughs> with the American Heart Association, everything that's come out of this, but let's take it into just a positive spin and let's talk about the many benefits of coconut oil. Cause hopefully we've hammered home enough that this report was bogus and can be thrown out. 
Yep. And again, the only thing that was reported was that coconut oil raised LDL. They did not look at a baseline or change of LDL particle. And they did not mention HDL improvement, which it did. So that's an interesting thing as well, because a lot of docs look at that HDL ratio. And, and that is because it's the, the broom of the vessels. So let's talk positives on coconut oil. Um, we will be linking a lot of studies <laughs> in our notes because you guys know we don't like to just kind of read beepu bapu off of scripts. There's other podcasts you can listen to for that. We like to keep it relatable and accessible and, and some level nerdy but enjoyable. So there have been a lot of studies actually looking at um, the influence of dietary intake of coconut oil and lipid changes. And so there have been, like I said, studies that have shown improvement in HDL. We've seen a reduction in waist circumference and visceral fat levels, which is the type of fat that is more disease prone. Um, we've seen reduction in inflammation markers in the body with coconut oil consumption. We've seen antimicrobial effects, specifically seen with the caprylic acid um, and the monolaurin as two of the main compounds. There's lauric acid, caprylic acid, and monolaurin, all that have beneficial influences. Um, and so there's awesome studies on that. And we use caprylic acid in many cleanses in the clinic. Um, there's been research looking at, this is one of the titles of a study, weight loss diet that includes consumption of medium chain triglyceride oil aka coconut oil, leads to greater rate of weight and fat mass loss than does olive oil. So again, the American Heart Association is recommending the Mediterranean olive oil, maybe because they're not threatened by it, maybe because the pharmaceutical industry won't have anyone to give drugs to if people are losing weight and thriving on their own. <laughs> so there's actually a study that compares two healthy oils, coconut oil and olive oil, and shows that coconut oil enhances metabolism and has a greater weight of body fat mass loss, which is amazing, which is a strong marker of disease risk. Mm -hmm. So there's that. Um, there's been studies that have shown beneficial influence on antioxidant status, and then there have been interesting studies on uh, Alzheimer's disease, uh, looking at things like tau proteins, inflammation in the brain, um, and uh, influence of an anti-inflammatory support as well as antioxidant status. Yes, and then thinking about just generally speaking, our cell main membrane health and even the composition of our brain, right, is supportive of, of more fat in the diet. Yeah. I mean, so the brain is 60 to 70% fat by makeup by weight. And I believe 70 plus percent of that is cholesterol. And um, so again, I'm much more concerned as a functional medicine practitioner when I see cholesterol levels total cholesterol falling below 160 is a huge concern to me. Same thing with LDL falling below 80, huge concern to me. Um, and so we like to keep ample amounts of these healthy fats that play an integral role in our cell membranes, in our brain, in our neurotransmitter firing, keeping things all lubricated <laughs> for mood stability. My anti-anxiety diet, um, which, you know, again, comes out in July, you'll hear more about that, but is a high fat diet in both phases. It is dominant fat in macros and one phase being ketogenic. Um, so there is just tons of research on mood stabilizing, brain influential, immunological and inflammatory benefits of a high fat diet. And saturated fat has a big place and a big seat at that table. And then hormonal balance as well, we haven't even spoken to yet. 
Yeah, yep. Sexual hormone changes are favorable as well as thyroid influence. Um, there definitely is the anti-inflammatory mechanisms and enhanced expression of free T3 with use of coconut oil. So a great way to spend your calories <laughs> with the consumption of coconut oil. Yes. So, so much there. We'll link a whole bunch of studies for those of you that like to nerd out and we'll save those of you that don't <laughs> from just reading word for word from those. Uh, so let's talk a little bit more, Allie, about those components of coconut oil that you mentioned, the caprylic, lauric, and uh, capric acids and what they actually do. Sure. So um, about 62% um, of the fats in coconut are made of MCTs. And MCTs are medium chain triglycerides. And uh, medium chain triglycerides are within the saturated fat bank. They're a shorter form of a saturated fat. So 91% of the fat total in coconut oil is saturated fat. So majority is saturated fat itself. And then of that saturated fat, the majority being from medium chain triglycerides. And those include the caprylic acid, the lauric acid, as well as monolaurin and capric acids. And medium chain triglycerides are known in the keto community because they aid in direct production of ketones. So medium chain triglycerides do not have to be metabolized in the same way that longer chain fatty acids do in order to produce ketones. So that's why the whole push of adding like MCT oils to your keto coffee or the MCT oil powders or just the big rays of coconut oil in general. And that's why when we do keto recipes for a fat fast, we include a ratio of MCTs to um, butter or ghee, which is going to have CLAs, conjugated linoleic acids, other healthy fats, um, but driving with those MCTs. So MCTs are easier to digest. They are not going to be readily stored as fat, but they are readily metabolized as fat as fuel and ketone pushing. Um, they have the antimicrobial and antifungal properties. They tend to be, because of their medium chain size, smaller, of course, which allows for easier um, cell permeability, more immediate energy source to the mitochondria or the energy factories within the cells of our body. They are um, going to be processed by the liver and, again, immediately converted into fuel versus being stored and dried into storage packages. They're much more prone to active fuel utilization and ketone production. Caprylic acid is a type of beneficial saturated fat that has the main known antimicrobial and antiviral and antifungal properties. Um, it also has a lot of anti-inflammatory influence in the body. Um, and so it is found beyond coconut and coconut oil and coconut products also in uh, breast milk and um, raw cow's milk. And it is said to maybe be there within the relationship of prevention of urinary tract infections, bladder infections, candida, and especially mastitis, right? So if it's in the mammalian milks, um, it's helping with that regulation of the bacteria from the saliva of the feeder. Um, and then that milk production. So it has that natural antiviral, antibacterial influence within the milk. So it helps to keep the nipple and everything uh, safe, which is where I was alluding to earlier of using coconut oil as a salve as a really awesome tool. 
Um, caprylic acid can also prevent against STDs um, and then even oral infections like gingivitis. So that's where it is my favorite lubricant to recommend to clients. Um, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that with applications. Um, and then also one of my favorite recommendations for oil pulling because you're actually not only bringing circulatory flow in the periodontal tissue, but you're also bringing those beneficial compounds. So we're bringing in that caprylic acid to fight infections and regulate the microbiome that starts there in the mouth. Yes. And that's just the caprylic acid. There's still lauric acid and capric acid. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, and they all have beneficial influence. So, I mean, and, and there's studies that particularly will highlight one over another. Um, and, you know, lauric acid and monolaurin are the ones that we really see on a pathogen level and strong antimicrobial properties. And this is why everyone that I have on a cleanse, I have them taking two tablespoons of coconut oil every single day to help to give them that kind of full spectrum support. Um, and then, like I said, you may even be using a form of caprylic acid in a supplement form, or maybe a caprylic acid with a blend of lauric acid and capric, um, and or other tools and just using the coconut oil as a food. Awesome. Two whole tablespoons too. Uh Oh, watch out. American Heart Association. <laughs> I'm going, I'm pushing beyond that. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 Awesome. So let's talk about, we talked about the application in cooking, but I guess when are your favorite times to use coconut oil because of that saturated fat structure? As far as, uh, topical or, oh, in cooking. Yeah. Okay. So in cooking, um, well, like I said, I love putting it in my keto coffee. So I love using raw coconut oil, um, in my keto coffee. I love adding it to smoothies. Um, especially if we're using like a nut milk base, we always need a little bit more fat in a smoothie or a protein shake. So I would add a tablespoon of coconut oil there. And then, um, coconut oil, just like any oil, you can do the extra virgin, um, which is going to have a little bit more delicate bonds. And then there is going to be the, um, coconut oil, which is more fit for higher heat. And, um, the extra virgin I would always use for raw and topical use. And then even a light saute, like I would cook my eggs in an extra virgin coconut oil. But then a refined coconut oil, which is going to have a little bit more high heat stabilized bonds, I would use that more for roasting my vegetables or um, for, for like baking applications um, and um, like higher heat rubs and things like that. Awesome. I think my favorite thing to do in coconut oil is like cauliflower with curry powder. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I love any of like the nut ball recipes when you add coconut oil, even just that tablespoon or two to the recipe and then you freeze them. Mm -hmm. It's like that creamy, it's that really awesome mouthfeel that you get when you have a yeah. little bit of frozen coconut oil, especially if it incorporates macadamia nuts too, which are super high fat. Oh yeah. That melt in your mouth. Like I think yeah. our lemon shortbread CBD balls that's that I recently- That's exactly what I was thinking of yeah. <laughs> in my head. Yes. So good. I'm going to make another batch of those with a high dose of coconut oil, you guys. Um, <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Yes. So, and then we've already alluded to some of the other uses, and I think we're both on the same page that it's kind of our, our Windex, if you will, or our, our cure-all. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about applications beyond the kitchen. And I know we're an advocate for a jar in the bathroom, one in the bedroom. Oh, Yes. 
all the places. <laughs> so topical applications, I love it as an eye makeup remover and really cool because if we are prone towards um, like styes or eye infections, remember that there's a lot of biome and bacteria along the eyelid beds. Um, and so that's a really great tool to be able to use coconut oil to help to remove makeup, but then also maybe after washing our face to help to regulate um, that area of the body. It is my favorite sexual lubricant because it is non-toxic, right? Um, you guys, so many lubricants and or condoms that have lubricant on them have endocrine disruptors and toxic You're compounds it right there and that's like an orifice <laughs> that absorbs a lot of things okay and so be mindful of that um, so this is my favorite lubricant because it's organic it's edible it melts with body heat i mean how much more fun could you have so you can rub it you can eat it you can lick it and all the things um, before i make becky blush so <laughs> It's my favorite, and um, for that reason, I keep a separate jar on my nightstand. Um, and then, like I said, if you have many partners, a great thing as well, because it can actually prevent STDs as well, so pretty cool. Um, not that I would say that that's foolproof, but it can help with reducing infection. Um, eczema and dermatological concerns. So from eczema to psoriasis, um, you know, there's a lot of mechanisms within those that have fungal or dysbiotic influence. So you are providing it topically as a salve to protect the skin and protect those cell membranes. We talked about how that cholesterol and saturated fat helps to create healthy cell membranes. Um, and there's no cholesterol to be clear in, in coconut oil, but there are saturated fats. So that helps with the cell membranes, but it also could help on the bacterial and yeast influence of those dermatological conditions. So kind of same way where like a cortisone cream would be used as an anti-inflammatory, you're going to get the anti-inflammatory, but then less prone towards a flare of the biome influence. So love using that topically. And then beyond dermatological concerns of eczema, psoriasis, and rashes, even things like sunburn. Now, I would say I wouldn't recommend putting on coconut oil before you go out in the sun. <laughs> um, like, uh, it's got an SPF of four, which is not very high. <laughs> okay. Oh, you looked that up. I didn't know yep. that. Yep. Um, so, you know, and I mean, maybe being dumb, I could very well see myself doing that. Like, yep. not that I recommend it. You know, like I used to do back in high school with the baby oil, which is also top toxic. But anyway, um, but to try to get that sun reflection, but better to use on a sunburn. Um, it's a great moisturizer. I always apply it after the shower. Um, it can be used as a lip balm. It can be used for wounds, as I mentioned. So truly cuts, scrapes, even bruises. Um, it can help with cellulite. In fact, there is a combination of using grapefruit seed essential oil mixed with coconut oil and rubbing it on targeted areas and that helping with cellulite. Um, it's great for a massage. It can be used as an insect repellent, especially if mixed with tea tree oil or rosemary oil. So it could be like a delivery salve. Uh, it's great for viral influence like uh, herpes and cold sores. It can be used as a shampoo mixed with baking soda or apple cider vinegar, especially to help with dandruff, which can often be secondary to dysbiosis. Um, it can be used as a body scrub with coffee grounds or uh, sea salt or sugar, um, blended to kind of make that abrasive influence. As I mentioned, great diaper rash cream. Um, it can be used orally for uh, the oil pulling I mentioned, or even in the form of toothpaste, just mixing baking soda with a essential oil of choice like peppermint oil and coconut oil makes a very simple teeth whitening toothpaste. 
You could even add some charcoal in there if you wanted yeah. to make anything. Um, and then it can be used in a deodorant mixed also with baking soda at a different ratio and um, probably different essential oil combinations there. And then beyond that, <laughs> there are even like household applications and so many things. I mean, you can use it as kind of like a goo gum type thing um, to help to emulsify and remove stickiness on products. It, it, it's amazing. You need more than three containers. Yep. Yep. And I think we'll have to do a blog post with maybe some of these little recipes that we alluded to, like a yeah. homemade toothpaste and a hair mask, which... I have coconut oil in my hair right now. <laughs> yeah. I do it about every other week because it is really greasy and you just have to, you know, know that that's how your hair is going to look back in a bun and then you uh -huh. wash it that night. But I do, I do, I do it about twice a month and I think it really helps for scalp. Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. For sure. Okay. So we'll get that blog up by the time this episode airs. So we'll be able to link to it. And then before we go, let's, talk about some of our favorite coconut-based products. So beyond just coconut oil, what are your favorite coconut, maybe top three, Allie? So products like brands, or give me brands? your top three first, Becky. Well, <laughs> uh, so I was gonna say, you know, especially with, with travel, um, I always, always make sure I have coconut oil when I travel both as a moisturizer and, um, you know, as a, uh, oral use to do in like a bulletproof coffee and just right. kind of dip into, you know, if I get a Starbucks black coffee or something, I can whip it in there with my little, um, aero latte wand. And then I'll also bring it because sometimes we travel to some funky places and I don't know what I'm getting into with, you know, the food and the water and mosquitoes and all kinds of things. So I bring those little, um, packets from, Trader Joe's actually. Yeah. Yeah. And those are like a, a tablespoon, tablespoon about each, I believe. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. So that's one of my favorites for travel. I would say the artisana coconut butter packets as more of like a snack or a yeah. spreadable. Um, those are so good. And then native forest simple for coconut milk. Yes. It's definitely my favorite one. I had some of that this morning in my coffee. Um, and then I'm really into the milk and honey coconut oil based deodorant right now. So it's like okay. coconut oil and baking soda and different essential oils. It's pretty awesome and no irritation, which is big for me with the natural deodorants. Cool. And I would say all of those are on my list. And I um, really like also the F-bomb line of their coconut oil oh, macadamia yeah. nut yeah. blend, which is amazing as a, a travel option. And then I tend to use the two brands of coconut oil that I tend to go towards are the Dr. Bronner's and the Nadvita. I can never, is it Nati, Nadvita? I think it is. Um, as Nadvitas? the Nadvitas? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nadvitas. Mm -hmm. And they also have a really good coconut mana, which is a coconut butter, um, which is fantastic for a bunch of different applications of use. And then uh, also at Trader Joe's, I believe, is frozen chunks of coconut. Yeah. Coconut yeah. So I really like to. Yeah, I like to thaw some of those and put those in a keto protein shake, um, which is a nice uh, as a nice base. And I get cases. We'll put links. We're relaunching our Amazon store um, of that Native Forest Simple Coconut Milk. I just get a case because it's way cheaper that way, and that's the base of a lot of things. Yeah, <laughs> a I lot have of that things one on auto subscribe as well from Amazon. <laughs> the only thing I would like to mention before we go on, as far as coconut products and such 
is coconut flour. Just for those of you that may be new to it um, or may be playing with a recipe of Becky or mine on the blog um, or you know something somewhere, coconut flour is not extremely versatile. And the first time you eat a product with coconut flour or if you accidentally use too much coconut flour mm -hmm. in your recipe, you have a very hard time swallowing. Yeah. <laughs> It, it's like you just bit into dry sand, um, in my opinion. Um, and it's very, and it's not as granular sand because that'd be more like an almond flour thing, which I can deal with, but coconut flour, it sucks the saliva out of your mouth. <laughs> um, and so I have to be mindful. A lot of times I'll read a recipe online and want to do a modification. Um, I try to keep at max an eighth cup or two tablespoons of coconut flour in a recipe. Anything that has more than that amount in my opinion, is generally too drying and not desirable, especially if we're talking about a keto item, because often the keto foods and baked goods, you're not going to have the like banana or the more like kind of lubricating wet ingredient mix. You're not going to have the maple and things like that. And so um, I tend to try to keep that coconut flour at about a two tablespoon max. And I was modifying our um, pumpkin pancakes on the, on the, on the blog this past weekend and didn't measure and made a mistake in that sense because I omitted the maple because of, I was making them keto and I accidentally, I wanted to sub out a tablespoon of coconut oil for two tablespoons of maple and I didn't add the coconut oil and then I added, I think, the full amount of coconut flour and, you know, those those things are there for a reason. <laughs> were, you, were you multitasking while you were cooking? Yeah. Oh, oh wait. <laughs> I think I saw it. You were still in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So definitely coconut flour, not a one-to-one -one or anywhere oh. close substitution. For flour or nut flour, right? Yeah. So I yeah. generally, that's the only area. Like usually if I'm going for like adding fat to a smoothie, adding fat to something, I'm like, woohoo, coconut oil. And I choose that over a nut, a nut butter. But in the sense of choosing a meal or a flour, I generally choose other products like almond flour, hazelnut flour, um, over coconut flour, or use very sparing amounts, not because I'm concerned about a health influence. That is a culinary application, just to be clear. Yes. Okay, so let's get into, just before we go, a couple of our favorite recipes that use coconut anything. So coconut milk, coconut flour, coconut shreds, coconut oil, all the applications. Um, so I just posted over this past week for St. Patty's Day, a coconut milk based gelatin panna cotta that was really good. It's like mint chocolate um, with a little bit of matcha in there as well, actually. Yeah. I wanted to dive through my phone and eat some. <laughs> Byron's been doing that for you. He's all about it. Aww. Taking them to work as a snack. I'm like, mm, okay. <laughs> as long as it gets it out of the house. <laughs> oh my gosh. Good. Well, and you avoided that gnarly green dye. So you yes. win. Yep. Yep. <laughs> the matcha matcha and mint. It's amazing. Yeah. So let's see. Favorite coconut recipes. I feel like I literally put it in everything, but um, like I said, keto coffee. So we'll link in our show notes, the cinnamon keto coffee. <laughs> so, hey, dad, <laughs> who questioned me in the beginning on the Apple News article, yes, you can still add your coconut oil to your keto coffee. And yes, intermittent fasting is still a good thing. 
Um, I haven't read it yet, but Apple News this morning had a post on intermittent fasting. So my dad, of course, pushed that to me. And he's like, is this redeeming, Allie? Look, you're ahead of the curve again. I'm like, okay, whatever. Uh, As long as we don't have to do another rebuttal this was a pro it was it was pro. okay good 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 yeah so i was like okay apple news um <laughs> so yes cinnamon keto coffee is definitely a fan favorite and a personal favorite that i do daily but i might switch out the cinnamon for other flavor enhancers uh keto coconut flour pancakes is a good ratio of that texture so that would be one to try for sure the maca cacao fat bombs that we put out around valentine's day are a fabulous one um and that's dairy free as well right yes yep. so that's a dairy free fat bomb uh the whole roasted cauliflower is a fantastic one um which you melt the coconut oil and drizzle that over with a bunch of different herbs and seasonings and roast the cauliflower whole super easy and beautiful for a dinner party and then a fan favorite that is from the Naturally Nourished Cookbook is the raw walnut fudge, um, where coconut oil contributes with soaked walnuts as the base of this beautiful fudge-like texture. Um, it is something that you would store in the fridge or the freezer, um, but that tooth feel is fantastic as that coconut oil solidifies in the colder temperature. So yummy and literally so many more. If you go on our blog at AllieMillerRD.com backslash blog, you will be able to search by ingredient. And if you type in coconut, you will get pages and pages and pages of recipes that use coconut in some form or another. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So to put this thing to bed forever, I hope. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So in general, the recommendations that were proposed in the American Heart Association's report are really nearsighted. They're only looking at heart health and basing this on our total cholesterol and LDL, and this is not the most accurate way to determine true cardiovascular risk. Right. The fact of the matter is that saturated fats from coconut oil, cacao, ghee, grass-fed animal products are not the culprits when it comes to heart disease. Hydrogenated oils, partially hydrogenated oils, and oftentimes unsaturated fats in the form of polyunsaturated fats, which can become those when treated inappropriately, as well as refined grains, sugar, and processed foods are still the biggest villains. So you will not hear me coming off of my high horse of a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet, and I will not back down in my recommendations of having coconut oil daily to fight against disease, and I will not back down on my recommendations of saturated fat as a beneficial tool to whole body health. Yes. So we hope that this puts you guys at ease to continue using your coconut oil. And really, if you take anything away from this podcast episode, please, please, please don't stress about eating coconut oil because honestly, that stress is probably more likely to give you a heart attack than coconut oil is. (laughs) For sure. And I hope that you guys came up with some good, interesting ways to apply coconut oil, maybe beyond those that you're currently doing. So beyond feeling more confident about your current use, maybe you're going to ramp it up a couple notches to get more beneficial influences from this amazing whole food. 
So thanks again for listening. If you liked today's episode, please share it with your friends. Uh, you can share us on Instagram by uh, tagging at Allie Miller RD. And um, you can also share our episodes on your Facebook page. Uh, I think it's really helpful to share the message of food as medicine and shed some light on this fat phobia that just needs to die. We're over it. We're over the misinformation. And we, like you, want to spread food as medicine to the masses. So if you can, take a moment to leave us a five-star review with a sentence or two on iTunes. That definitely helps our algorithms and helps us to show up in more people's searches and um, share the message with friends as always. And head on over to AllieMillerRD.com where you can dig deeper into books and programs, our supplement shop, and our blog with all of these tasty recipes. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.